So what is worship? I'm going to have you guys meditate on that, reflect on it in a little bit, uh, for a little bit, and then um, in a few moments, if someone is willing, I'll have you share your own definition of worship. But all too often, when we hear the word worship, we immediately think of music. Am I right? You can raise your hand, nod. Um, that's kind of the the culture that the church has set, at least in the American church. Uh, if I'm honest, when I hear the word worship, I almost immediately think of Chris Tomlin singing, How Great Is Our God. I don't know why. Uh, it's just something that subconsciously happens, probably just hearing a lot of Chris Tomlin in my youth and uh, that little man's voice just staying in my head, no matter what. <laughs> um, for far too long, worship has become the label for the musical side of corporate church services. So it almost suggests that the preaching, the reading of the word, the praying, the serving, everything else that happens during the service is not worship. At least that's the mentality that I had growing up of we would go into service, we would worship, we would hear the sermon, then we, we would conclude with worship, as in we'd have a song or two after the sermon. Um, and that's just poor shepherding, in my opinion. Um, that's not the approach we should have to our worship services. Thankfully, uh, at Redemption, we know that that's not the case. We know that worship is so much more than just the songs we sing on a Sunday morning or hearing Chris Tomlin on K-Love. Uh, but if this is news to you, then I'm very excited that you will be joining with us over the next nine or so weeks as we uh, teach through corporate worship and what that actually means and uh, just shaping the culture of our church and how we are able to observe what worship truly and genuinely is. So now that you've had time to think on this question a little bit, does anyone want to share their definition of worship? If not, that's okay, but I did plan someone answering into my listen. Okay, that's okay. <laughs> Someone say something? Praising God. Couldn't say it any better. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, those are both great answers. Uh, I enjoy learning definitions to words that I'm not familiar with. I'll sometimes hear Justin use a big word in a sermon, or I'll hear something fancy on a TV show or in a book that I'm reading and start opening up my dictionary app and just learning, just constantly learning, learning new words, figuring out why this word is used, why it exists, something along those lines. Uh, and while I am familiar with the word worship, I was curious to know what the formal dictionary definition uh, of the word is. And it offers two definitions. The first is to honor or show reverence for a divine being or supernatural power. And the second is uh, to regard with great or extravagant respect, honor, or devotion. And to Jimmy's point, Pastor Jimmy's point, the, def, uh, the, the dictionary will often give examples of how words can be used in sentences. And um, 
In regards to the second definition, the example was the fans worshipped the singer or celebrity or something like that. So kind of taking this distorted, sinful view of worship and applying it to a secular culture. Uh, At the beginning of this year, I was able to preach from Psalm 150. Uh, In that sermon, I offered a definition of uh, true Christian worship that I came across while I was studying and prepping for that sermon, and I came back across it uh, studying and prepping for this week just because uh, I meant to bring that book. I'll bring it next time I preach or teach, but uh, it's a really wonderful book on uh, worship and just looking at it through Scripture, which was very helpful for this lesson. Uh, but in that study, it gives this uh, this definition. Worship is exalting in the exaltation of Christ. So to clarify, exalt and exalt are two very different words, uh, though they sound very similar. Exalt means to be extremely joyful. Exalt, A-L-T, means to elevate, raise, or lift up something high. So true Christian worship is essentially being extremely joyful in the elevating, raising, and or lifting up of Christ. This ultimately is the answer to our original question of what is worship. You see, worship is not just confined to music. If that were the case, those that are not musically talented would be unable to worship. So we should be very thankful that we are able to worship God, not just through music or a genre of music, but ultimately through a lifestyle and a way of living. And that's uh, ultimately, I think, the, at least in, in the lessons I'll be teaching, that's kind of what I'll be emphasizing, that worship is a lifestyle. It's a way of life. It's not just a genre of music. It's not just a hour and a half or so on Sunday morning, but it is ultimately the way that we live and go about our day, uh, all for the honor and glory of Jesus. So I'm not just going to drop this definition and a brief explanation and send us on our merry way. That'll be a very uh, short course seminar this morning. My goal ultimately is to lay the groundwork for the next nine weeks as we dive more into this course seminar on corporate worship. Uh, We will uh, address uh, more of the phrase exalting in the exaltation of Christ Uh, And then this morning specifically, we will be looking at at examples throughout Scripture, essentially from the Garden of Eden to what we're promised eternity will look like uh, and what Scripture is showing in regards to different ways of worship. So I don't have a specific text that will be in this morning. We're going to be jumping around basically from Genesis to Revelation uh, and just giving a sort of 30,000-foot bird's-eye view of specifically what scripture is telling us about worship. Uh, And I really just want to break the assumption that worship is equivalent to just music uh, because it is thankfully so much more than that. And thankfully, I've just come to that realization as I've just grown and matured, not just as a worship leader, but as a a Christian, as a believer, as uh, as a leader in the church. Um, So we're going to look at several Old and New Testament passages. We're going to see how God's people worshipped him throughout history and what worship is going to look like uh, in the new heavens and new earth. So first, we're going to uh, briefly look at and 
uh, I guess, summarize Genesis 1 uh, through 3, chapters 1 through 3. Um, so in Genesis 1 and 2, we see that Adam and Eve are able to dwell and worship in the garden in the presence of God. They were able to walk with him in the garden and could stand in his majestic presence. We don't see that anywhere else in scripture. Moses had to have a veil in order to interact with God uh, to be able to survive his glory and majesty. And then when Moses came down from the mountain, his own face had to be veiled because other people couldn't withstand or survive God's glory uh, just being projected. Uh, and so we see that as, as Adam and Eve are able to dwell and commune with God physically, we see that God is giving, uh, gave Adam and Eve two initial commands. The first is to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and have dominion over creation. We see this in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. The second command, uh, God places Adam in the uh, places Adam in Eden to work it and keep it. Genesis 2:15. We're ultimately seeing that working is a way of worship, is an obedient way to worship and honor um, the Lord because. Before sin, work wasn't hard. It wasn't laboring. It wasn't um, dreadful in some occasions, but it was something that was joyful because God gave this command. So Adam was able to work the garden and cultivate it and keep it uh, healthy and growing. Both of these commands, uh, since they're done before the introduction of sin and disobedience, are genuine acts of worship. Adam and Eve were able to worship God by fulfilling these commands. However, as we enter Genesis chapter 3, we are immediately introduced to the serpent in verse 1. It's in these moments that we see the distortion of worship by sin. Humanity's intimate connection and ability to physically dwell within God's presence is cast aside because of sin. Yet, we are introduced to what many call the proto-euangelium, which is the first gospel or the first good news in Genesis 3.15. Hope and I meant to have that pulled up. I'm apologizing. Um, oh, it's right here, thankfully. Um, so Genesis 3.15 says, I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. So we're given this promise of First, enmity and discord uh, and just chaos and havoc. There's going to be conflict between ultimately sin and the creation, but then as just sin permeates mankind, there's conflict between man and man. Yet, the Messiah is going to come, and he will put an end to all pain and suffering and fear of death. Here in Genesis 3.15, we are promised that a Savior will bring restoration. The serpent's offspring will strike and bruise the woman's offspring, but ultimately the woman's offspring, Jesus, will absolutely crush the head of the serpent. And so we see uh, in these beginning chapters of Scripture what worship ought to look like and then how sin comes in and just taints it and destroys God's original plan for it. In Genesis chapter 22, uh, we see Abraham make this motion to sacrifice his son Isaac. Uh, his only son, the son that God promised 
to Abraham and Sarah that they had waited such a long time for, the son that God promised to establish his covenant through. And Abraham makes this motion all to be obedient for the sake of glorifying and worshiping God. We see that Abraham worships God because he is willing to sacrifice anything and everything for this worship and for this honor and glorifying of the Father. It's through this selfless act that, uh, that God blesses Abraham and promises that Abraham's offspring will outnumber the stars in the sky and will outnumber the sands on the seashore, which we see in Genesis twenty-two seventeen. Jumping over to Exodus chapter 40, the conclusion of Exodus, uh, we see after many, many, many years of the cyclical pattern of praising God, then complaining to God, and then sinning against God, and then repenting to God, and then praising him all over again, we ultimately see that the tabernacle is, is established. This immovable temple worked or acted uh, as the dwelling place of God while Israel functioned as a uh, nomadic tribe while or until they entered the promised land. And so it's through this tabernacle, it's through this movable tent, essentially, that Israel can come and commune and dwell and draw near to God and worship him during the time of wandering. If you recall the book of Leviticus, as we studied that not too long ago on Sunday mornings, um, we saw that because of mankind's uh, sinfulness and unholiness, that they were unworthy to dwell in God's presence. So in specifically Leviticus 19, we see this creation of the sacrificial system in order for man to atone for their sin, in order to worship God in his dwelling place, in the tabernacle. If you recall from the Leviticus sermon series, you may remember that this sacrificial system, uh, which was an, an act of worship, preparing these sacrifices and doing them correctly and obediently, was taken very seriously. And you may recall several instances where uh, some individuals were killed because of improper sacrifices or uh, going to touch the ark because it was falling over or just doing things that God commanded them not to do. So it was uh, the sacrificial system and, and essentially cleansing oneself in order to commune with the Lord was taken very seriously. As we move on to First and Second Samuel, we see after the time of Judges, that God finally grants Israel's request for a king. But ultimately, it's a sinful, imperfect king. We see that in Saul, uh, and then we see that in David. While uh, both of these men are sinful, they are imperfect, uh, David may be considered a better man than Saul for numerous reasons. However, as Scripture tells us, and as David even confesses and writes in the Psalms, David is still very sinful and imperfect, and his story just plays into that. Yet, he's called a man after God's own heart. So in his sinfulness and his imperfection, he is still able to worship and honor and glorify God and seek repentance and redemption. But because Saul and David are still human, they are still 100% fallen and sinful, and so this imperfection that we see in King Saul and King David only leaves the hearts yearning for a more perfect king that ultimately comes in King Jesus. 
Uh, in Second Chronicles chapter uh, three through seven, we see that King Solomon builds the permanent temple, and it uh, it has a a space within the temple called the Holy of Holies, which was considered to be uh, like the tabernacle. It's where the glory of God dwelled in. It's essentially where His holiness and His glory stayed. Um, so, like the tabernacle. The Holy of Holies is where man could be near to God and worship him. Again, following uh, sacrificial systems, having priests doing X, Y, and Z in order to be obedient and cleansed, so to speak, uh, and able to uh, be able to dwell within God's presence without dying. As we move on, excuse me, into Job, excuse me. As we look at the book of Job, uh, you may think your life is tough, and then you read the book of Job, and you're either very encouraged through your own hardships, or you realize, man, life is not as bad as it could be. In the span of one day, Job receives news that he loses everything that he holds dear. He loses his family, he loses his physical possessions, he loses his livestock, which helped uh, provide income and a source of living. And essentially, his life is just turned drastically upside down. Yet we see that he still worships the Lord. Uh, Satan essentially goes to God and says, hey, want to place a bet? Satan should have known better, but, you know, he didn't. Uh, he, he is um, very um, adamant that if Satan takes away everything from Job, Job will curse God and will turn away from God. Um, God, being God, knows that Job won't, uh, but decides to entertain Satan's request. And so Satan just continues to to poke and prod at Job and just wants to push him across that line. And while we see Job curses the day of his own birth, we never see him curse God. He has some very uh, interesting and poorly advised conversations with some of his friends. And then eventually at the end of the book of Job, we see Job had this interaction with the Lord that um, Job essentially is repenting for his arrogance and thinking that he knows more than he actually does um, because of his uh, repentance for his humility and his acknowledging that he is a sinful, imperfect human. The Lord blesses Job, and we see that um, his abundance of possessions and blessings and family uh, just continues to grow, all because. Job essentially worshipped him through hardships. Uh, In Ezekiel chapter 36, uh, verses specifically 22 through 28, we see a promise of a new covenant between God and his people, uh, one that is not written on stone tablets, but ultimately written on the hearts of man. Uh, in, In Ezekiel 36, verse 26, we see, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will, I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. This promise is foretelling of the new covenant that comes with Jesus um, and that this new covenant is established through God's people. And as we get into the New, Te- new Testament, we see that this new covenant is not just for the Israelites. We see, especially with Paul's ministry, that 
uh, the Gentiles are brought into God's kingdom and God's family. And thankfully so, because if it weren't for that, we would not be a part of God's kingdom or God's family. Uh, as we enter the Gospels, uh, all four accounts, uh, we see Jesus, the promised Messiah, finally enters the scene. The Gospels are filled with, de- uh, with te- Jesus' teachings and how he fulfills Old Testament prophecies. But ultimately, in regards to worship, we see Jesus calls out a lot of people. Uh, he calls out hypocrisy and self-centered worship which ultimately are not a result of the changed heart. Uh, Jesus calls God's people to true, genuine, heartfelt worship that focuses on glorifying God. In the Gospels, uh, specifically with Jesus' crucifixion, we know that Jesus' death is significant for a plethora of reasons. For our worship, it is of vital importance. You see in the gospel accounts that Jesus declares the words, it is finished, and the earth shook and the veil in the temple tore, was torn into. <clears throat> Excuse me. This is significant because it shows that we no longer need a temple or a specified priest or a certain number of rituals in order to dwell in God's presence. We're able to worship him and commune with him anywhere and everywhere. And we see this played out even more so in the book of Acts uh, as Jesus is, um, well, you see it at the beginning of Acts and even at the end of some gospel accounts of Jesus essentially promise, not essentially, he does promise the coming of the Holy Spirit, uh, the helper that he promises. And it's through the dwelling of the Spirit uh, that we're able to have this uh, ongoing communion with the Lord and no longer having to go to a temple or sacrifice a certain animal because of a certain sin that we committed. Uh, We can just drop down wherever we need to and acknowledge God's goodness, his glory, his majesty, repent of our sins and be forgiven on the spot and worship with him in such a manner. Uh, Last week, Uh, From Colossians 3, verses 15 through 17, uh, we looked at Paul's encouragement to the Colossian church of letting the word of God dwell richly within them so that they could encourage, admonish, and teach one another, and to do so through singing. So now we're singing, singing, well, singing takes place throughout the Old Testament as well, but I wanted to emphasize in the Old Testament that there were ways to worship outside of singing. But We do see this command. Uh, We are told by the Apostle Paul that it is through this singing that we can encourage one another, that we can bless one another, that ultimately we are praising God for his goodness. But in a few weeks, I think uh, Justin and I will hit this on different lessons, but the singing of God's glory and honor and praise is is a ministry to one another. and that's, I'm excited to talk a little bit more of that when we get to that point. Uh, there's something important in this Colossians passage in regards to worship that uh, I do want to note that I think is uh, worth us reflecting on. It says, whatever you do in word or in deed, do everything in the name of Lord of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. 
So Paul is telling us that we are able to do anything and everything uh, as an act of worship, as it is done genuinely in the name of Jesus. Um, oh, I left this out of my notes, but it's in 1 Corinthians 10, I believe, verse 31. Uh, Paul says, uh, whatever you do, whether uh, whether you eat or drink or whatever it is that you do, do in the name or in the glory or honor of Jesus. So ultimately, Paul's giving another encouragement of you can do as you wish, so to speak. Uh, it's a passage on Christian liberty, which is a whole other lesson in and of itself. Um, but Paul is saying, as long as you are genuinely rooting yourself in Scripture, rooting yourself in a relationship with the Lord, as you do these things in Jesus' name for the sake of Jesus' kingdom, not just as a throwaway, oh, God said so I could do this, so I'm going to do it. That's not the direction I'm going. Um, as we seek to do things for the glory of Jesus, we can we can worship him through just about anything. Uh, in verse, or no, in Hebrews chapter 13, um, we're given the encouragement by the author of this book that it's an encouragement and a warning um, that Jesus must ultimately remain the focus of our worship. Jesus is the cornerstone. Without him, all else fails and crumbles. And without Jesus, our worship remains distorted by sin and essentially becomes the definition of what Pastor Jimmy gave at the beginning of just worshiping things to worship it and not because of the holy reverence that Jesus deserves because of uh, the worship that Jesus deserves because of his holy reverence. And then as we uh, conclude Scripture in Revelation 21, we get this glimpse of what worship will look like in eternity. Uh, John gives this uh, wonderful, bizarre, beautiful, sometimes chaotic uh, vision account that he receives of um, things that I will not attempt to explain or interpret <laughs> right now. But he does give us a wonderful glimpse of the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem. God's people will be united with him. We will be able to worship and dwell in his presence just as God planned from the beginning. In Revelation 21, uh, verse 22, John writes, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God the Almighty, and the Lamb. So this is huge, especially for uh, just the time that John is writing in because of the importance and significance of the temple, of being able to only commune with God in the Holy of Holies. Um, and so to see no temple, to see that the temple is the Lord God and that it is the Lamb that is Jesus um, that's huge. That's why we are able to worship in a school right now and not a only a fancy tabernacle or cathedral or uh, a room with elegant stained glass windows. Uh, we can worship here. We can worship at home in our prayer closets. We can uh, worship in underground 
churches in countries where it is illegal to be a Christian. Um, we can be a Gentile and be a part of God's family and kingdom, and we can worship him thankfully, freely, uh, and openly in our own country. Um, ultimately, I'm going on a tangent, but my point is we don't need a temple anymore to worship, uh, to be able to worship and be in God's presence. So we've done a quick overview of several Old and New Testament passages uh, that give us this glimpse into what worship looked like in biblical times. In a few weeks, Pastor Justin is going to teach on what's called the regulative principle, uh, which is uh, essentially just goes more in depth on what scripture instructs in regards to our worship. Um, so that'll be very important. I just wanted to look at what did worship look like? It wasn't just singing. Uh, it was atoning for sins. It was making <clears throat> sacrifices. It was uh, acknowledging who God is in his reverence and that uh, mankind is sinful and unholy and unworthy to commune in his presence. But now, thanks to Jesus, we do not have to worry about being able to only worship through a high priest uh, because Jesus is the high priest. Uh, he came to crush sin and fear of death and I'm repeating myself, but we just get to worship freely and openly and um, in ways that are not seen in Scripture because of certain laws and rules and uh, rituals that needed to be done. So my goal this morning, as I uh, stated at the beginning, was to set the stage and give us this uh, running definition of worship with exalting in the exaltation of Christ and to break this assumption or this go-to thought that worship is just the musical side of things. Thankfully, it is so much more than that. When Christ is placed and kept at the center, everything we do can be an act of worship. As we seek to honor and glorify the Creator, our own lifestyle will be worshipful. We can teach in the school system for the glory of God. We can work in the pharmaceutical industry for the glory of God. We can be stay-at-home parents for the glory of God. We can install HVAC systems for the glory of God. The list can go on, but ultimately as believers, as we stay rooted and founded in Christ, our lifestyle, the way that we go about interacting with people, the way that we uh, excel and complete responsibilities at work or at home can be an act of worship. We live in a very fallen, broken, and sinful world, and we are called to be salt and light. So, oh, I did have that First Corinthians verse in here. It was just at the end of my notes. Apologies. I'll echo Paul again in his letter saying, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do for the glory of God. So with that, I will close. Um, we can fellowship and enjoy some coffee now that that's out again. <laughs> Father, thank you again for this morning to experience your new mercies. God, to experience the joy to fellowship with you, to fellowship with 
our brothers and sisters. God, if it be your will to interact with someone that doesn't know you this morning. God, I pray that we worship you not just in song, Lord, but in serving, in communicating, in loving on one another, in the preaching of your word, in the reading of your word, in the praying to you this morning, Lord. I pray for us as a church, as we continue uh, through this core seminar, that either we are uh, open to new perspectives and ideas on what corporate worship is, or that we are refreshed and encouraged on something that we have uh, learned long ago. Lord, I pray that ultimately we edify the saints for the glory of your name in our time together on Sunday mornings in both the course seminar and in our uh, service that will take place in just a few moments. Lord, I'm so thankful for you, for your son dying on the cross and resurrecting and ascending so that we can worship you in a building such as this, that we can worship you in private at home and that our corporate worship gatherings would be uh, just a reflection of our private worship throughout the week, Lord. God, you are so good and so merciful to people that do not deserve it. God, we rest in this truth. We rest in that you are in control of all things. God, and we worship you for it. We lift this up in your holy and precious name. Amen.